0: Hello and welcome to Jaw Law. I'm your host, Joe McGregor from Dallas, Texas, and today I am going to talk about one of the most boring topics we've ever covered, and that is the subject of indemnification. The reason we're going to cover indemnification is twofold. Number one, you just should know what that is. Indemnification is a word that as you're reading your own contract, you're You're figuring out what things mean, and then you get to this section, and then you're just like, what is this? And then you read the provision and try to understand what it's talking about, and it just really doesn't make sense. So, on the one hand, we want to help you understand at least what's going on. Because, honestly, this is a topic that not even lawyers fully understand. But the second reason that we're covering this is because, especially during COVID summer, over the last few months, not so much in the last month or two, but particularly over the summer, we got a ton of questions about indemnification. Somewhere, I don't know if somebody wrote an article or posted a message, shared an experience on Facebook or whatever, but for a while there, over like this three-month stretch of time, This was the hot topic. We got more calls in like three or four month stretch than we did like the previous decade. So something got our clients super excited about indemnification. So we're going to talk about it and hopefully clear up maybe a few misconceptions about what it is and what it's doing, how it can hurt you. So here we go. First of all, what is indemnification? Generally speaking, we explain it as I got your back clause. In other words, if I get you in trouble, I'm going to take care of you, legally speaking. But to truly understand this, I'm going to take you back to first year of law school. Every law school across the country has a fairly standard set of first year classes. One of those classes is called contracts, where you learn about contract law. And that makes sense. As you can imagine, it's a class where you learn about contracts. Another class... Is called torts, and torts is kind of a funky word. It's it's really fun, but a lot of people don't know what that means. Now, in the healthcare space, sometimes we unfortunately learn what it is because we probably have heard about tort reform. It's essentially a wrong that one person commits against another. Criminal law is a crime against the state, often against another person, but, but it's different. Tort is against a person. It's between me and you. If I'm walking on the sidewalk and you're walking the other way and I get a sudden urge to push you down and I do that, I've committed a tort. We understand malpractice in the context of tort. You come to me for dental services and I pull the wrong tooth, I've committed a tort. And what's important about the concept of torts is that this body of law imposes this obligation that if I commit a tort against you, I am obligated to. To make you whole, let me share this example because I think it's really easy to understand in this way. I'm driving down the road and I am texting my buddies and not paying attention to how I'm driving. I veer off into another lane and I bump into you. I've totaled your car, bruised your leg, made you late to your bachelorette party, whatever. I have ruined your car, your body and perhaps some plans. Well, for everyone who has been in an accident, if it is that other driver's fault, their insurance is going to take care of it. You don't have a contract with that other driver. You probably don't know the other driver. But we all understand that driver has committed a wrong. I, by texting, wasn't paying attention. I committed negligence. And I have hurt you through my negligence. And the law requires that I solve the problem that I have created for you. Now, the downfall... To that structure is that for better or for worse, it's probably not something that we can fix. But if I do cause you all that drama and that damage, it's kind of difficult, or at least it can be difficult to ascertain just how much I owe you. Now, some of this in the especially in the car example, it's kind of easy. We send it off to an adjuster and we have a process for this, but in a lot of things, we don't have. A set and established method for understanding and ascertaining how much I am supposed to owe you. So we take it to court. And that is both expensive and inefficient. Now, going back to the concept of contracts, what we do is we install a provision, a concept called indemnification. Now, understand that indemnification is a very, very common provision, In dentistry, it's going to be in your lease. It's going to be in your employment contract. It's going to be in your practice acquisition documents. If you hire a contractor, it probably is going to be in that. And it's not even just inside of dentistry. Virtually all contracts that you're going to sign, there's going to be some terms of service and indemnification is an almost standard terms of service. And inside of that indemnification provision, you're going to see a multitude of complexity. But at the end of the day, what it is trying to say is that if someone in this contract hurts another person in this contract, just like in torts, that person needs to step up and take care of the other person. And the differences from indemnification to indemnification clause are going to be just the scope and scale. How much do I owe you? What's the process for figuring this out? How do I make a claim under this section? Who is covered? So, for instance, if it's an employment contract, is it the employee who has to indemnify the employer or the employer who has to indemnify the employee? Or is it what we call mutual indemnification where both parties are indemnifying each other. Some indemnification will set standards like this isn't triggered unless there's gross negligence. Some are just regular negligence. Some don't specify at all. But either way, in your contract, you are seeing some type of expression of coverage that either mirrors or approaches the tort concept. So why do we have it? Well, one reason we have it is because in court, when I go to sue you or you sue me, I have or you have, one of the litigants, has now two claims. So remember, whether we have a contract or not, if you commit a tort against me, you have to cover me. I can take you to court. But if I have a contract that has indemnification, now I have another thing I can point to that puts you on the hook. So when lawyers are acting fancy, we say that I have a claim in contract and in tort. So if you think about a TV show where there's a trial and they're reading out the the jury verdict, and sometimes they'll say, on count one, we find the defendant guilty. On count two, we find the defendant not guilty. On count three, and so forth and so forth. Now, a civil trial is a little bit different, but it's the same idea. What you're saying is, On count one, in tort, I am not guilty. But on count two, in contract, I am guilty. And of course, we don't express it in those terms, but we're trying to keep this as simple as possible. And by the way, this legal tradition is actually older than this country even is. Goes back, for the most part, to old English law. And originally, you have different courts. So you have a court that adjudicates contracts and a different court that adjudicates torts. So that's how that's why we kind of speak this way. But but that legacy is still alive. And that's why we put it in contracts. If it's not in your contract, that doesn't mean you're not potentially liable to somebody. It just kind of changes the legal complexion. Now, again, one of the benefits to having indemnification in a contract. And by the way, if you're an employee, most of the times the benefits not yours, it's your employer's. But maybe that's a conversation for a different day. Anyway, point being If you have an indemnification clause, one of the benefits is that it streamlines the process. Remember back when I said in tort law, we have to have this really inefficient process where we go to court and we do a bunch of litigation, spend a bunch of money, waste a lot of time. Well, in this indemnification clause, hopefully, if it's well written, we know exactly how to make a claim, what the claim can be how to prove the claim, and how to apportion liability. The hope, at least in part, is that a well-written indemnification clause that both parties are honoring actually alleviates the need to go to court in the first place. So we think of them as really bad, or at least the clients who are calling us are like, oh man, this is horrible. Well, yeah, the way it's written in your contract, absolutely it's horrible. But the idea in and of itself isn't necessarily horrible, or at least it can be made fairly equitable. So to that point, when you find an indemnification clause in your contract, it's not automatically bad or good. I think one of the first indications of how you should uh, potentially approach it is to see which direction the indemnification covers. So for instance, if you're an employee and there's an indemnification clause And it's only you indemnifying the employer. Well, we would argue that on its face, that is potentially unfair. If you're buying a practice and the seller wants you, the buyer, to indemnify the seller, or vice versa, then it's potentially unfair. So, to that point, let me address a specific question where one of our clients asked, why would a practice want this in the first place? Think about it this way. Let's say that you become an associate and through the course of your dentistry, you commit malpractice legitimately. You've made a mistake. Mistakes get made and you have made one. There are no questions about it. Well, the way that litigation in this wonderful country works is that you get a bloodsucking lawyer representing that person that you hurt or they're not going to just sue you. They're going to sue anyone who has an insurance policy, especially the practice owner. So it's not just you that's going to get named in a lawsuit. So is your boss. Maybe your boss's mother. Those personal injury attorneys, they are quite special. But the practice over there, they're saying, hey, wait a minute. I'm not the one who committed malpractice. When I hired you, I thought you were going to be better than that. I didn't make a mistake here. You made the mistake. So if I get sued and I have to hire a lawyer, you're going to help me out. If I have to hire an expert witness, if I have to hire a consultant, whatever, I would not be in this situation but for your malpractice. And that's why practice wants that so that this isn't debatable. Now, we would also argue, and we see this in corporate dentistry, Where sometimes an associate is doing everything right, but something gets messed up. A lot of times on the admin side, sometimes it's compliance, sometimes it's billing, but something happens that gets the associate in trouble through no fault of their own or through no reasonable fault of their own. So an indemnification in that sense might help you with regards to any kind of defense that you may undergo. If you have to hire an attorney, call expert witnesses, have consultants, pay a fine, whatever the case may be, it may behoove you to have some protection, some automatic protection where you don't have to go to court and say, actually, it wasn't my fault. Yes, I'm the the licensed professional, but it actually was someone else's fault. You don't want to have to get into that debate. You want that to be fairly automatic. All right, so shifting gears a little bit. What are the types of things that we see in indemnification, like types of coverages? Well, since I'm a lawyer, it's easy to mention that one of the things that you almost always see is if I have to hire a lawyer, you have to pay for my lawyer. But also fines that get assessed, maybe losses that I incur, and just generally uh, damages, this is where we see a lot of indemnification provisions actually, actually pretty open-ended. And on the one hand, we're not that big of a of open-ended language. On the other hand, it's kind of tough because the whole point is that we can't reasonably anticipate that you're going to do something, you're going to hurt us. So how would we know exactly what to plan for? And so naturally, you're going to see some open-ended language. So in conclusion, we get a pretty simple question. Are indemnification clauses good or are they bad well they can certainly be bad they can be unfairly written unfairly weighted against you and that's a matter of draftsmanship it can also be one sided i'm the only one that has to indemnify someone that's that's bad but it is important to remember that in an instance where there is an indemnification clause triggered almost always it is triggered by something that is also a tort Doesn't have to be, technically, but almost always it is. At least if it is going to be something worth both parties' time. If it's something that they care about, it probably was a tort. You've probably hurt somebody doing something. You've gotten someone in trouble, and there are going to be real dollars on the line. And remember that just because there is an indemnification clause or there is not an indemnification clause, you've still committed a tort. So it doesn't necessarily alleviate. It's kind of difficult because it can impose additional liability, but we're talking about layers. It's not the case that if you didn't, well, I shouldn't say never, but it is unlikely to be the case that if you didn't have an indemnification clause, you wouldn't be in trouble. That's not it. It's you were already going to be in trouble. And the indemnification clause can either make that smoother or worse. And unfortunately, There's no way to know because a lot of that is fact dependent. A lot of it has to do with the personalities involved. And of course, a significant contributor is the way that provision is drafted, which brings me to my final point. You should always have an attorney who understands these. Read it. What your hope is that your attorney is also not falling asleep when he gets to this provision. It's not a fun provision to read. There is a tremendous amount of case law about indemnification clause. Down to the wording, two or three words in that paragraph can make all the difference whether you're liable or not. And to be frank, most attorneys aren't familiar with what those two or three words are. So make sure that when you're working with an attorney, it is someone who does know what indemnification is they know it intimately, and they know and are able to explain whether or not this particular indemnification clause is more likely or not to be beneficial to you. Now, somewhat of a postscript, I want to mention that there is a potential issue with indemnification in that if you have genuinely created a tort, again, you've genuinely hurt somebody, and it is so severe that you are unable to cover that damage with your malpractice insurance or other insurance products, then yes, indemnification can be quite bad because you are still going to be on the hook. Again, it doesn't matter whether it's in your contract or not, but indemnification goes that extra step and imposes that on you. But if a patient dies in your chair, uh, you're probably going to be in trouble no matter what. But it should be pointed out that there is always the possibility that... Your indemnification clause ties you into more liability with your practice or whoever than what your insurance covers you for. And you would still be on the hook. Now, again, that's more of an insurance coverage issue because if you're on the hook for over a million dollars, you're still on the hook for that million dollars. There's not much taking that away. However, it just needs to be pointed out. It's, it's something that gets asked, hey, am I only liable up to my insurance limits? Well, nope, only if your contract says that. And that is something that you can install in your contract. Sometimes we'll see that as an effort to minimize liability. You can say, I am only liable up to my insurance amounts. It's not a winner. you know. As you can imagine, a lot of people are a little leery about agreeing to that stuff. So if you're an associate, you try to, Propose that to your employer, your future employer. Not a high degree of success with that kind of stuff, but it is something you could try. One thing we also see are people who will find other ways to limit liability, but that's about all you got. Anyway, the point of this was to help you understand what is indemnification, generally speaking. And by now, I hope you recognize that it's actually pretty complicated, and you should ask an attorney when you're confronted with a contract with an indemnification clause, which is honestly most contracts, not all, but most, and you should thoroughly understand what every single word in that indemnification provision states and implies. And that is all we have for today. Thank you so much, and we will see you next time.